So I'm very lucky because my job means serving and helping people and animals. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hi, hello, how are you? Welcome back to the podcast that's going to teach you how to have someone teach you to become a zookeeper. The Raw Safari Podcast, y'all. And that's right. This is going to be a really exciting episode because, uh, you know, in the first season, we spoke to an alumni who was then still at the uh, place known as America's Teaching Zoo at Moore Park College in California. It was a great episode. It was a lot of fun to chat. But now... I have actually been there. When I was out on my California adventure, I decided to head on up to Moore Park College and spend some time at America's Teaching Zoo. And, uh, whew, what a time it was. They treated me so well. You're going to hear all about it. I got to meet a bunch of cool ambassadors and a bunch of cool people and, uh, even got a little private tour of the zoo because I got to go on a Monday when they weren't open. So, um, that was cool. As a matter of fact, this whole thing was such a cool experience that I'm not going to give you one episode. I'm going to give you two episodes from America's Teaching Zoo. This week, you're going to be hearing from Mara Rodriguez, okay? Now, Mara is the Zoo Development Coordinator at America's Teaching Zoo and is the person who I talked to initially and set everything up with me. And um, she's got some really cool roles at the zoo. And I, I do say the word roles because, as y'all know, you don't just have one job even when you have one title at a zoo. Um, and then next week, we're going to take it to the students, okay? I actually got to do three mini-interviews, interviews, uh, with students that are currently at America's Teaching Zoo, okay? And you're going to get to hear from them about their experience, their lives. It, it's kind of a quick distillation of a normal Ross Safari interview with each one. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, I, I pulled a lot of their audio out of the background, but you are going to hear uh, the occasional moment in this podcast episode where um, there are other people in the room. And that is because uh, we had an audience for this one. It wasn't quite, uh, you know, my eventual plan is to get big enough to do Ross Safari live lives where we go to zoos and y'all can come and watch the interview happen. It wasn't that, but we did have some zoo PR students who were hanging out and watching and observing and learning and then ended up getting interviewed for the podcast. So um, you're going to hear a little interaction with them and that makes it kind of kind of fun as well. You'll get to hear about the animals at the zoo, both the ones that I met and the ones that I, I only got to see uh, on exhibit, but all of it was awesome. And um, you're just going to get to learn what it's like to go to college for zookeeping. And now you may remember that there are two colleges in the country that do this kind of program, right? So we've got Moore Park College, who, you know, with uh, America's Teaching Zoo. And then there's also Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo in Florida. And uh, you heard from them earlier this season. One thing that I find really interesting is the difference in approach between the two schools. Um, if you haven't listened to the Santa Fe episode in a while, uh, it's John Mio, and you can go check that out again because they talk about the types of animals they have there and why they choose them and very much about what their strategy is for uh, safely preparing their students for the world of zookeeping. And it's very different than what they're doing at Moore Park now. I think both of them are very cool, and I think both of them lead to success, and I know keepers who have gone through both programs who absolutely adore them. So um, I'm not here to say that one is better or worse um, or anything like that. I just think they're very different programs, and so it's really worth listening to all of these episodes, if this is something you might consider doing, to figure out which one you'd want to go to. Uh, but I will say this. I had an amazing time at Santa Fe, and I had an amazing time at America's Teaching Zoo. Um, the students, the staff, and of course the animals at both were absolutely incredible. And, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful to both very much for having me there. 
Uh, a couple of quick reminders before we get into this week's episode. Make sure you're following along at Ross Safari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Ross Safari Pod on TikTok. And, um, you know, you can hit up rossafari.com for merch or to listen to the podcast or, I don't know, whatever else you are looking for from a podcast website is is probably there or not. I don't know. I, I haven't really been on it in a long time. So, uh, yeah, pro- probably there. So you can go check that out. Um, and finally, remember that if you want to support the pod, patreon.com slash rossafari is the place to do that. Uh, all right. Let's listen to a commercial because they're always fun. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right, so it is time. Uh, without further ado, let's get to my interview with Mara Rodriguez, the um, zoo development coordinator at Park College's America's Teaching Zoo. All right, so uh, why don't we start off by you telling me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. Hello, my name is Mara Rodriguez, and we are at America's Teaching Zoo today. It's on the campus of Park College, a one-of-a-kind teaching zoo, and my title is Zoo Development Coordinator, but I've had a lot of titles at this zoo. <laughs> that, that often seems to be the case, and titles <laughs> also never really mean what they say. Um, <laughs> no. But yeah, so what, what, what is your job officially uh, as a zoo development, whatever you just said, because it was a lot of words. Exactly. So my job is to make sure that... Um, we get this zoo on the map and that people hear about America's Teaching Zoo and that aspiring keepers find out about us so that they know that there's a place for them to get training and go to school and learn how to become a zookeeper. It's my job to make sure that the children in the community know that they can celebrate a birthday party or celebrate a birthday here, go to summer camp here, come on a field trip here. And it's also um, my honor to make sure that I bring awareness to this zoo to generate revenue so that we can give our animals the best uh, life possible. And sometimes, you know, that means giving them a, a larger habitat, more naturalistic habitat. Sometimes that means buying them a really cool toy that costs a few thousand dollars. So I'm very lucky because my job means serving and helping people and animals. That's awesome. That's uh, that's really cool. That was the thing that I found the most shocking when I got into this area at all is how much you need to help humans to help animals, yes. whether that's conservation, whether that's training up future generations of keepers, what, whatever. Um, I think there there has been a long time belief that if you're a keeper, it's because you don't want to work with people. You want to work with animals instead. And like, okay, animals are clearly better than people. But <laughs> um, no, but seriously, I, I don't think that's possible anymore. And I'm realizing more and more that you have to be able to deal with people. Um, You're yeah. 100% accurate. And I think that the belief that I want to become a zookeeper because I don't want to work with people is something that was relevant maybe 30 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. But in the last, I would say, five to 10 years, the capabilities and the desire to work with people is a must. And I still have students, you know, come to my office who are having a bad day and, you know, just say, I did this because I want to work with animals and the people annoy me and I have to stop them in their tracks right away and say that this job of caring for animals is about working with people every single day because our message is loud and clear that in order to help animals, humans need to get along. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. Um, so let's start with your journey 
Like, okay. How did you get here? Because this is this is a very unique place, and you seem like a very unique person from our little bit of chatting. So how did this all come together? Tell me about your love of animals and just how you got here. Well, I think my story is a bit interesting because I don't have the typical, like, oh, I grew up on a farm and was surrounded by pigs and sheep my whole life is absolutely not the case. I didn't know that I liked animals until a certain animal came into my life when I was in the 11th grade. Had no idea. I didn't have a lot of pets and I didn't consider myself, you know, um, nature girl by any means. So when I was in 11th grade, I was in the counselor's office at my high school in Pasadena and um, one of my classmates brought a baby pigeon, baby as in just fell out of the nest, into oh the goodness. office. And so cute. Like right away I saw it and thought, what a cute little creature. Um, and helpless. Absolutely helpless. And nobody knew what to do with this animal. Not a thing. Um, no concept of who do we call, what do we do um, with this you know, couple day old bird. So I decided it was that moment. Like, it's so crazy that that one moment changed my entire life because you know what I wanted to do before I found out I wanted to work with animals. What's that? I wanted to be, um, a guitarist for Prince. <laughs> I mean, that's a hell of a good choice. <laughs> Challenging career path, but exactly. Good I, I was like taking it. guitar lessons at the rec center. So, nice. you know, I have a leg to stand on there. <laughs> so I, at this moment that changed my life, I said, I'll do it. I'll take it home. I'll figure out how to care for this baby. And I did. I carried around this box the rest of the day, <laughs> took it to fifth and sixth period, and then took the took the baby home. And my father, who was a biology teacher, kind of helped me understand, like, this is what will need to happen. There was no internet. I couldn't Google it. And um, I decided to call a vet. I learned that it needed to be fed every couple hours, and I did that. And I did that for a few weeks, which turned into a couple of months. And I rehabbed this bird um, without any help or any uh, internet. <laughs> and I realized, like, hey, I'm, I'm good at this. Waking up every two hours in the middle of the night at 16 years old was not a problem for me. So I started to realize that maybe this was something I enjoyed nurturing and taking care of animals. And um, the rest is sort of history. I realized that this program here at Moore Park College was only 50 minutes from Pasadena. So I was very lucky. Um, when I went to SeaWorld and asked one of their trainers how they got their job, they said they came to this program, Edom, the Edom program. And um, so I, I, you know, I just took step by step. I decided um, at, after one year in a university that I really wanted to come to this program. So I left the university, came here when I was 19 years old and I got my two years training and I have been here ever since. That's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Yes. My first job here was actually summer camp counselor on my graduation day. Um, the coordinator of the program, Gary Wilson asked me right after graduation, I couldn't even get a picture in with my parents <laughs> asked me, Hey, I want to start a summer camp at the zoo. Would you like to, uh, help start it? And that's when I was 20 years old. Um, and so I became a summer camp counselor, did that, uh, then there was another opportunity and then another opportunity. And this is my plug to tell young people, be everywhere and work hard because you never know when your moment is going to happen. And I am, um, I am just a living, breathing example of taking, um, taking advantage of moments. That's awesome. That is something that I am so passionate about. I'm the same way. Um, to get into professional music, you have to, you know, there are a lot of breaks that have yes. to happen, but you have to be there for them to happen. And before I was able to sustain a career, um, I played thousands of gigs, thousands. And I can trace what took me from uh, nobody to touring the country, doing wow. what I love in two gigs. Wow. But one of them was a freebie that most people would tell me I should have never taken, but I wanted to, and I met a really important person who mm -hmm. also happened to have wanted to and should not have taken that gig either, according to like conventional wisdom. <laughs> and then he dragged me to another gig where I happened to meet the music director who would take me on my first tour. Wow. And those two gigs were all that I would have needed to do yeah. to become a touring musician, exactly. you know, but I played thousands and it was by always being there and always being available yes. that I got 
what I got, you yes. know? And I yeah. think that is incredibly right. important. And it's interesting that I feel like now we, we kind of live in this culture where you have to convince people that you need to give in order to get. And um, my new position here as a fundraiser, it's a little bit tricky because I'm not good at just coming out and, you know, cold hard asking for money or a donation. But what I have found is giving my time, giving um, the animals to people is what inspires them to give to us. And therefore we also get after giving. So um, I, I love that whole concept and congratulations to you. And you had your two moments that you can pick out right away. So special. Yeah, it really is. Thank you. Yeah. That's, that's so cool that you have that too. I, I do love that so much. Um, and you know, it's, it, it's funny because it's what you said. It's all about giving and then you'll get back. Mm -hmm. Um, when I started this podcast, I was asking every facility, can you help me? Can you be on my podcast? Can you help me by being here? And I quickly learned that that's kind of dumb. And now when I, when I reach out, when I reach out to you, when I, I say, hey, here's the thing, here's my reach, we can get word of your program out. And like, cool, I get a podcast guest. I also may get to see some cool animals, you know, <laughs> bonus for John. But I really, because I really do, it's not, um, I'm not being disingenuous. I want to help. I'm here because I believe in this program. I've heard about this program. I have looked into it and I believe y'all are doing great work. And I want to share that because that's important. Um, but am I also benefiting from being here and, and hanging out and seeing it? Oh yeah. 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 Right. And it just, it was, it's such a better approach when you explain to other people how you can help them. Mm -hmm. You know, again, as long as it's, as long as you're being honest because yeah. manipulation can be seen through pretty easily, I think. Yes. But yeah, but, uh, that is such a great attitude. I love that so much. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, let's, let's talk about how the school is structured here a little bit. Okay. Because there are students everywhere. And I mean everywhere. There are four <laughs> of them staring at me right now, y'all. Um, no, and and so, like, talk me through what this is like. Okay, it's so unique and it's so cool. And thank you for letting me share this because there's so many people out there that don't know how to get started in this industry, and we are a great place to do that. So the structure is pretty simple, but the day-to-day -day is pretty crazy. So students come in as first-year students. <laughs> they all just nodded their heads when you said that. <laughs> That was amazing. Sorry. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> the people nodding their heads that every day is crazy. Those are first-year students. Um, so first-years come in, and they learn the basic overall function, operation, and um, just concept of this place. So we are a living, breathing classroom. The students are in the classroom for their units of lecture, but then they're out on the zoo for their lab uh, units. They're also out on the zoo to get that hands-on experience that very few places can give their students who are studying to become animal care professionals. So it's in the classroom. Well, first of all, it starts with roll at 6.30 in the morning. Oy. And that's an eye-opener for some people <laughs> and can be a big turnoff. But it's a big old wake-up call that, like, you're not here to take selfies with animals. You are here to pick up poop and get here at the crack of dawn 365 days a year, right? So that breaks them in. Um, they work on the zoo, they feed, they clean, um, they do projects, they answer the phone, they work here on the weekends, they help with the summer camp, um, they do uh, interpretive stations throughout the zoo for our guests on the weekend, and they're getting that yummy hands-on that looks so good on the resume. It's that experience that is so valuable. Um, in their second year, they take on even more responsibility by being assigned to specific animals. And those are the animals that they're required to care for on a daily basis, everything from the training of the animal, uh, which they're graded on, and uh, the medical husbandry, the um, medicating for preventative, for a sick animal, all of that, that care, is, um, it lies on their shoulders. So um, we ask a lot of our students because the upkeep of the zoo is also something that is a collaborative effort. So you have the staff, the students, always looking out for um, the operation of the zoo. Makes sense. And um, what is the, the ratio of, like, how many pro keepers are here versus students doing the, the keeping? Okay, so we have um, about six. There's six on the operations staff. There are eight on the instruction side, so part-time and full-time instructors, 
And um, we quickly groom our students to become the pro keepers. Nice. But we do obviously have a paid staff. And um, those are uh, those are the people that are coaching the students for the whole two years while they're here. Um, and all of us staff have our strengths, and we like to share those and make sure that we're sending out great quality zoo professionals. Love it. That's awesome. Um, and you can tell that you are good at the PR side of things. You're, you're very good at chatting about this. And you, you're telling me that the reason we have people in the room with us right now is because you're not just teaching picking up poop 101. Right. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit and, and how, um, I guess, how all-encompassing the education is here? Right. We want to make sure that our students are prepared to work anywhere in a zoo and that is what we really promote um, as our mission here is that animal care is, um, is all-encompassing. It's not just getting out there and working um, in the dirt, picking up poop. So we um, give our students opportunities to do things outside of the regular keeper job. And that would be uh, giving them tasks in PR, in, you know, serving as zoo ambassador. Um, we have some positions that the, the students are just in charge of our commissary or our kitchen. And they learn, I mean, that's a job at a zoo, it's right? It's a big time job Commissary at a zoo. keeper, mm -hmm. um, nutritionist. So that is an area that our students can go get experience in. So the four people sitting in the room with us today are the public relations managers. And they asked for this particular duty because they thought it might be interesting to learn more about the PR aspect of zoos. Obviously, um, the perception of zoos has changed, uh, I would say, over the last five years incredibly. So it is the most important thing, in my opinion, to make sure that we are putting people in front of our audiences that are able to explain what we do to make sure people understand that zoos are about conservation and creating um, a mission of animal advocacy. And um, that is that is what we attempt to share, and that is what we attempt to teach our students to share. I love that, and I, I agree with you. That's so important, as is just transparency. Mm -hmm. I, I, I beg for it all the time, yes. um, you know, and, and luckily the zoos that are on my podcast are obviously willing to be transparent because right. they're on my podcast and right. other things. Um, but it is, it is shocking to me places that aren't. And I think, you know, certain, certain things like blackfish and stuff, um, mm -hmm. there's a lot out there that can cause people to be misguidedly informed or misinformed. I don't know why I threw guided in there, but uh, <laughs> to be misinformed about what's going on at zoos and aquariums and stuff. And um, there's a lot of ways to use pictures and videos to yes. not present the truth. And I think that if there's transparency, then it's easier to be like, no, no, that's not what we do. And here's a thing from two years ago that disproves that right. as opposed to no, 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 no. Here's here. Look, look at this now. Look at this now. Because, right. you know, then yeah. people could say, oh yeah, but did you change that? Whatever, you know. Right, yeah. I think that um, as zoos continue to evolve, transparency is going to be a huge area of growth for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be the the younger generation of PR people that mm -hmm. um, help figure that out. Right. Because I can also tell you that, you know, in talking to a lot of PR professionals for this podcast um, – some don't even know what a podcast is. <laughs> and and I get that. And, you know, it's a relatively newer thing, I suppose. Um, but the difference in my experiences with people – and it's not even so much age as attitude. But, but um, that get it and seem to want to change and want to grow and want to be transparent – um, and those that don't, I'm just like, oh, okay, you can, you can really tell the difference. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And, um, what I, what I think we need to really work on it, being transparent, obviously. Um, and like we've both mentioned, we have no reason not to be, but I think the other thing that has changed so much is we have guests come into zoos now who are, have already decided what they think about the organization. And that is something that I've seen is so different in my job at doing PR is standing out there in front of the exhibits and sharing what we do. And a lot of the time, um, coaching people through 
their perception of a zoo and going from a negative perception to a positive perception. I've had so much success just standing outside an exhibit, listening to people's comments and then engaging them in conversation and helping them understand that wherever they formed that opinion of us um, might have come from, like you said, one of those quick pictures or one of those very quick sound bites. And, you know, that's not how we educate ourselves or it really shouldn't be. So um, it's important that we get out and share what we do and be transparent. At at the same time, um, what I have found is people can be impatient. So really having your own sound bites to get people to, to, you know, to hook them in so that they will listen is really important. Yeah, that makes sense. I, uh, I've been learning a lot about just expanding on social media and stuff because that's, that's what we have to do now to promote all this stuff. And um, I found out that for Reels and TikTok videos, the average amount of time that people spend mm-hmm. on a video is seven seconds. That's I, I would say that's like, yeah, on a good day. Fair. And <laughs> the interesting thing about that to me, though, is that, that – so that was a recent study. There was also a study done a year or two ago that said that the average zoo guest will stay at an exhibit for an average of – Seven seconds. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but the fact that it's the same exact amount of time tells me something about our wow. um, attention span. I believe and, it. And yeah, it's really interesting. There, there are all these videos I come up with and stuff, uh, ideas for um, conservation ed things, and they're you know, like a minute long. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's that's going to be so long for so many mm-hmm. people. I'm, I'm so bummed about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. Accurate. We see that. It's just... They, from one exhibit to another. And mm-hmm. what's really important, I think, in training new zoo professionals is making sure that they're ready to get out there and they want to engage with guests because that seven seconds can become seven minutes if you have the right person standing out in front of the animal. Oh, absolutely. There, I mean, that's the people who love this podcast listen to everybody talk for like an hour because once they're engaged, yeah. then you're, you're hooked. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, hundred percent. Um, it's that initial hook that's hard, to, hard yeah. to catch. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's one reason I put a soundbite at the beginning of every, every episode. Yeah. You know, it, it, it takes a weird amount of work to figure out the soundbite and the timing and cut it and place it and all that stuff way more than you would think. Um, <laughs> I but I do you. it for every episode because I'm worried that if they just hear the music and they just hear me start blathering on with my intro, they're going to zone out. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, and that is when I got a claw stuck in my hand. Boom. Now right. you're going to listen to that whole episode to hear why this person had a claw stuck in their hand. That's good. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You got this. <laughs> Working on it. Uh, yeah. But um, so, okay, before we go any further, I'm noticing that it's 1040 mm-hmm. and we had talked about animal stuff around now. Should we take our break now and go see some animals? That sounds like a plan. All right. We'll be back. All right, so we just got back from animal time, which was my favorite part of this trip so far. (laughs) Students have been lovely. You've been wonderful, but animals. Let's be honest. Um, That's why you're here. I mean, yes. (laughs) And um, sadly, they can't talk on the podcast because if they could, then I would skip all y'all. You know? (laughs) Um, No, I kid. But uh, so I did want to talk about some of the animals here anyway. So that gives us a great opportunity to start off by talking about who we were just hanging out with. Let's do it. So you had great experiences outside right now with three of our best ambassadors. We have some animals that we have put so much time and energy and love into really desensitizing so that you can have experiences like you just had. And they're really unique. You know, you mentioned when we were outside that I've never been around a badger. That is correct. (laughs) And that is because you just don't see that many trained badgers like Tonka who is eight years old, and he's been here since he was about a year and a half. His mother was killed in the wild when he was really young, so he went to a rehab, and we gave him his forever home. And because he was so young when he got here, we had the ability to train him from an early age, which um, is the best thing you can do for an animal to get them thinking and learning as early as possible. So he is lovely, We have taken him so many places to educate thousands and thousands of people. Badgers, um, in my opinion, can be extremely fierce and have the potential to be very aggressive. They're very territorial. They're very defensive. They can back off animals much larger than themselves. And that just makes them so 
awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I was visiting the living desert when I was out here a couple of years ago. Great place. And, and they have a badger. And um, the badger was like pushed up against its glass in like this perfect place for a photo. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and I took the photo and it was amazing. Awesome. And then I was like, just in case, maybe I'll, I'll you know take a second, just make okay. sure we got it. And the badger had decided one photo per person, apparently, and <laughs> came at me now. Like, glass, totally fine, totally safe. I have, I've had experiences with animals like lions doing something aggressive and stuff, you know, right. through the glass. No problem. When that badger came at me, I shot backwards. I fell on my butt. I was yeah. petrified. <laughs> Even knowing there was glass, I was like, I don't know how strong that yeah. glass is. Surprise! <laughs> Badgers can be scary. I was actually really surprised when when I saw that that I was going to be meeting a badger. Yeah, and very slightly afraid. They're so <laughs> short. They look sort of cute, and then they're not. Oh, they look real cute. Let's not sell it short. <laughs> is Tonka named because of like Tonka trucks? Yes. Okay, because he is totally <laughs> yeah, a Tonka yeah, truck. Yep. Like, that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah, he moves exactly like a a um like a big bulldozer or yep. something. Yeah. Yeah. Sure yeah. does. That's that's kind of amazing. And you know what? Well, also, he is a bulldozer because he's nature's bulldozer. He moves a ton of dirt. Right. And we cannot keep up with how much dirt he moves around in his enclosure. We have to keep him safe. He digs burrows. We have to collapse those burrows every now and then so they don't collapse on him. I mean, that bulldozing they do is it's it's real. Yeah, no, that 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 makes sense. And I am sure that the students here just love having to uh to clean that situation. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've seen some students collapse in his burrows. Oh, and no. they're up to their thighs in, in dirt. And yeah, it's like all those those uh you know, the hazards of the job are not just you have to smell poop. It's lots of things. That is true. That is true. Although, let's be honest, the bigger issue is that you end up smelling like poop. It's yes, yeah, yeah. That's that's the real issue. Yeah, I think the only thing worse. Okay, now that we're on this subject, <laughs> the only thing worse than smelling like poop is for all my marine mammal uh, care friends out there. They smell like fish, which is absolutely disgusting because you cannot wash that smell off. Nope. And, um, that, that's, that's worse. Yeah. Worse than poop. Yep. You heard it here. I, yeah, no, I agree. I, I actually, um, I've, I've said this on a couple episodes now, but it's true. So I'm just going to keep saying it. If you go to a zoo that has an indoor penguin habitat right now, bring an extra mask. Yeah. That's fish and poop. Yes. And your (laughs) mask, even if you're only in there for like five minutes, your mask will smell (laughs) like the penguin habitat the entire day yes. it's I, I i have learned from experience here yes and so whenever i'm going to one now i bring a second mask and i like take care to like fold it up and put it in paper or something and put it in my pocket so that it is somewhat protected yeah and then i throw out the mask i'm wearing as soon as i leave because it's gross yeah 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 <laughs> Um, but speaking of cleaning up messes, uh, there, there was a different kind of mess made by a different animal that we met. Yeah. So um, let's talk about our friendly porcupine. Yeah, a strange mess, one um, that you only see on the floor at a baseball game, which is a <laughs> mess of peanut shells. Um, that's Rupi, our Indian crested porcupine. He uh, came here from uh, San Diego. Okay. And um, he, he's a real success story. They worked with him at San Diego. Um but were, you know, rearranging some things and their animal family asked if we would take him because they knew we would be able to put a lot of time and people energy into him. And so we took him and we started to train him and he has become another great ambassador because here once again is another animal people have not really been around, seen, um, up close and personal. His favorite food, um, is peanuts though. And that is what we use as his reinforcement. It's his primary reinforcement and we do not shell the peanuts for him. So boy, can he tear up some peanuts and make a huge mess. He is fast. Yes, He is well-skilled yeah. at peanut hunting. Yeah. Yes. And he's got that little rodent mouth with his rodent hands and it looks really cute and it sounds cute, but he leaves a big old mess of shells. Yes. And because they don't have great eyesight, it's their nose that they're using to figure stuff out. So you not only get the shells there, but then as he's snuffling to find if there are other right. things, those <laughs> shells go flying Yes, everywhere, which is <laughs> yes. adorable. But again, I can say that because I got to take pictures and then walk away while right. other people cleaned it up. That's right. Um, this actually brings up an interesting question to me though uh we'll get back to the animals because obviously but um 
Okay, so part of the goal here is to train people Mm -hmm. to train animals. Yeah. But as students get here and they're working with animals that have been trained for, in some cases, maybe 15, 20 years. You got it. um, You know, you know that you're starting off with a rock star. So how are you able to still train uh, first and second year students to train animals that are already trained? So that's a great question because sometimes those animals that are already trained are our best teachers. Okay. And, you know... Uh, my little fun thing to say is the best teachers at Moorpark College have four legs. <laughs> um, and that those animals, we had a mountain lion um, who lived to be 19 years old who was a great teacher because here's this mountain lion, an animal that, you know, trained professionals in our field rarely get to work with. And he was so well-trained to, you know, come out, work around students. We even walked him on a leash that he was able to read the students, know when they were uncomfortable, work them through it. And there are just animals that are so desensitized and so used to the learning process themselves that they see it in people and know what to do. It is crazy. I, 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 I've been doing this 30 years. I see it every day. Those are the animals that you know, are probably thinking to themselves, here I go again. I'm doing this for the 45th time. But they are changing the lives of our students. They're helping our students reach a goal and fulfill a dream that they've had since they were little. And they're allowing the students to learn in a safe way because they're so well-trained and they're so intelligent. I kind of went off on a tangent, but I just, I mean, no, I feel like I have, cool. to, yeah. I have to give props where props are due. Mm-hmm. And so the time you invest in an animal is important because you're enabling that animal to become a fantastic teacher to our students. So I don't think they get bored with it. And, you know, the students know that the animals already know what they're doing. So therefore, there's a little bit of comfort in that. And it takes that edge off. Um, so that that's one answer, is that those are the animals that make great teachers. The other side of that is it, this situation where there's so much turnover with the students and the animals are kind of learning the same thing over and over, it also forces us to be creative. So, for example, you know, you can teach an animal to wave. You can teach an animal to sit. But what this has forced us to do as humans is to really think outside the box and like, hey, Let's look at other behaviors we can teach these animals that might enhance their lives and make their lives better, free from stress, and teach them things like how to present their leg, arm, or tail for a voluntary uh, blood draw, or how to present their side up to the side of the exhibit to uh, participate uh, in a voluntary x-ray. And These are things that sound crazy to people outside the zoo world because, you know, I have friends with three-year-olds that have to pin their kids down for a vaccination, Um, but we've got animals that walk right up to the side of the exhibit and present a body part in order for a medical procedure to be done. So that's part B is, it you know, having these animals that have been here so long and know so many things, it forces us to think outside the box as trainers. That's really cool, and that makes a lot of sense. Um... I dig that. Um, and, and speaking of which, um, I, I understand that there's a bird here that is trying to be trained to dance, but right now it just involves a keeper dancing around. <laughs> so, so tell me about that bird that we hung out with. <laughs> that was Delilah. <laughs> Delilah is a blue crane or Stanley crane there. Um, a beautiful bird. Actually, Delilah is personally, at this point now, I would say my favorite bird on the zoo. Wow. And I've worked with um, so many great animals, but I've had so much fun with Delilah because they are not the sharpest (laughs) tools in the shed. Like compared to a citizen who uh, uh, can have, you know, the intelligence of a two-year-old human, you walk up to Delilah and it's like, it's no, not that. (laughs) (laughs) But what she is, is engaged. And what you see is what you get. And I watched the students, and I've had experience myself. I actually worked with some students a few years ago to try to train her to fly on cue. And, I mean, we ran around like a bunch of (laughs) dum-dums trying to get her to take off and run with her. And, you know, what our student, second-year student Roxy did today was try to demonstrate a natural behavior, which is the, the crane 
dancing, which is when they jump up and down and spread their wings. But honestly, I've seen Delilah do that behavior less and less because I think she's more entertained by watching the students try to get her to dance. (laughs) I mean, I was entertained. Yeah, it is so embarrassing. And I love, that's actually one of my favorite things about working with animals. And it's also one of the things that I see now as a teacher of people who want to work with animals is being able to laugh at yourself. Mm -hmm. And so when I see a student like Roxy, you know, jump up and down, dance like no one's watching. Even though we were and filming. Even though we were (laughs) and filming. And Delilah was not going to dance. I could tell from about three seconds into that (laughs) that she was not going to participate because she was picking up food off the ground. But that is one of those things, you know, people always say, like, what do you look for in, you know, the next generation of animal care professionals? And they think that there's going to be this, like, scientific answer I give with data. And one of my answers is you got to laugh at yourself. Mm -hmm. you got to make sure that you're not taking yourself so seriously that you forget what we're doing here. And um, so when I see students like Roxy jump up and down um, and not be able to find a dance partner in the aviary... And say, yes, you can post that on our Instagram. I love that. I I actually agree with you. Not only is that cool because, um, as we already talked about a little bit, like social media is becoming such a thing for informing people and Mm -hmm. transparency Mm -hmm. and all the good stuff that we talked about. But to take it a step further and to go like, deeper on this. And this may have something to do with the fact that I'm, I'm in the midst of reading a book about moral philosophy right now. I don't know. know. But, um, so relationship building isn't about showing your best side. And I'm not talking about animals. I'm talking, well, humans are animals, but I'm talking (laughs) about the, the relationships we all build every day, Mm -hmm. you know, and the relationships that go the deepest are the ones where you can be yourself, Mm -hmm. obviously. Right. And I think that's true with animals too. And I think a willingness to, to have that and to do that and to put yourself out there for your animal I mean, that stands out to me so much. And I I think that there's something there about the connection building with the animal and also the willingness to do, I mean, am I ever going to forget that moment with Roxy bouncing around? I am not. But the, the thing about it is you didn't do that for attention. You weren't doing it to be goofy. You were doing it because you loved that animal and wanted to show off that animal and were passionate about that. And I freaking love that. And it didn't look stupid to me. No, I, looked a little stupid to me, but, but only a little, no, I'm kidding. But it was so cool. And you're right. Not only did you know that that was not going to work, uh-huh. I knew that was not going to work. Uh-huh. And I'm pretty damn sure you knew that wasn't going to work. Yep. Yeah. You, but, but you had to try because you were so excited because you were so proud of, of this behavior. And yeah, of course you had to try because you right. love this animal. And that's, that's like what a real relationship is. Yeah. And I just think it's beautiful to see that human to animal in uh-huh. keepers all the time. You know? I, I absolutely agree and agree. And I've had so much success being myself around animals. I have trained my, my specialty. I kind of was very lucky and um, I've had a lot of cats just fall into my lap, literally <laughs> as babies, whether they've been confiscations from fish and wildlife or rescued illegal pets And I've had a fabulous career of training large cats, you know, lions, tigers, some mountain lions, even though they're small cats for all you experts out there. (laughs) Um, And people say, you know, even my mom, like, why are you okay doing this? How have you had success? Um, the, The animals react and respond to you so naturally. And I think that is because I am myself when I'm with them. I talk to them like I talk to my son and I talk to my friends and I talk to my family. I um, carry my body with confidence that everything's going to be okay um, because that's how I am around my students. Mm -hmm. And I know that in that leadership role, that's important. One thing I know is um, at the end of the day, a wild animal just wants to survive, get through the day and feel safe. So, an animal live for an animal living in the wild. That means something totally different. Um, for an animal here, that means its connection to people is important, and it's providing quality animal care. So, being that person that can help an animal feel safe and survive—that's what I think gets you far and connected to that animal. And um, animals need us; they do. 
And, um, you know, they want to be around a person who is themselves and open and readable, you know, not somebody closed off who isn't demonstrative. And um, I have seen that. I've seen instances with students that are not demonstrative. They don't like to talk a lot. They don't like to make eye contact. They think they can just get through the day without having any human contact. And um, what I want to tell them is to try to work on the skills to bring themselves out of their shell a little bit, because that's really going to have an effect on their relationships with animals in the future and um, the goal to make their animals feel safe and secure. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I was just talking to Hillary Hankey about a lot of this stuff um, mm-hmm. and how you kind of mm-hmm. interact um, you know, with animals and how the ability to stay calm and not like, even for me, just my ability to not freak out Mm -hmm. and get excited when I have those moments, like I'm super excited. Right. Mostly (laughs) after the fact. Right. Um, Cause in the moment it's just, you know, Colleen Adams, who I was telling you a little bit about before at the Cincinnati zoo Mm -hmm. mentioned on, on one of my episodes that when you have a moment with an animal, you both become each other's entire world. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a great way of looking at it. And if you can get to that zone, I think that's just amazing. You know? Yeah. Very cool. It is. It's, it's one of the perks of this job. That's for sure is being able to experience something that not that many human beings get to experience in their lifetime. And um, even though it's been decades that I've been doing this, I never, ever forget that. If anything, the more I do this and the older I get, the more I appreciate it. It doesn't like the novelty wears off type thing. That doesn't happen. That's awesome. Um, so let's talk about some of the animals that you have here that we didn't talk about. Cause like people might be thinking this is a teaching zoo. And mm-hmm. so, okay, there's this porcupine and the big scary animal is a badger, which again, can be big and scary, but um, that's not the case here, is it? No, it's not. What we want to do is have an animal family that can be the best teachers to our students and provide them the broadest experience. So that means we have a lion named Ira. We have (laughs) hyenas, um, Kadogo and Fonzie. We have tigers, Neil and Karma. We have raccoons, Nugget and Felix. We have birds, Hollywood, Mickey and Salsa. We have reptiles named Luke and um, let me Keo and Kia. We have um, well, maybe we only have one of those left. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and so everyone is, at the other end of the table really enjoyed right? that this moment. Is where I start to age myself because sometimes I'll ask about animals that aren't here anymore. It happens. Um, so. We we make sure that our students are graduating with experience with, um, you know, we have we have monkeys, we have primates, we have, um, you know, baboons. Uh, my favorite are Bubba and Chloe. I think those are the funniest names. <laughs> and um, we want to make sure our students can go get a job anywhere, whether it's with primates or birds, birds of prey, ancitocines, uh, reptiles, large carnivores, um, so, and hoofstock. They have to have experience training a hoofstock animal also. So there is a schedule in which they're assigned their animals so that they have all of that experience. That's just amazing. The idea of going to college for Lion 101 yeah, is, right? is pretty entertaining. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, tell me about your, your, your uh, lion and tigers a little bit, if you don't mind. Okay, let's talk about the lion. Uh, his name is Ira, which I think is such a funny name for a lion, but nonetheless... <laughs> He is the king of the campus. The whole college calls Ira the king of the campus, which is pretty special. He uh, was donated to us. um, Actually, he's on an educational loan from an animal park, uh, and he is brilliant. We took him in when he was nine months old. He did not have a mane. He did not have a roar. He did not have his big, incredible stature that he has now. So I think he was a gift, not just to the students and the staff and the zoo, but the whole community, because this community around the zoo was able to watch a lion grow from uh, cub to king. That's amazing. And we could, we could talk about lions and how they grow up and, you know, how their mane grows in and they look kind of shabby when they're in their (laughs) teen years and how they learn to roar and how loud their roar is. And it was just an awesome learning experience for an entire community. So he now lives in a brand new exhibit. He's been in there for about a year 
and um, he sits up on his artificial rock, which I think looks totally real, and it is like looking at Pride Rock from a Disney movie. It's so cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Lion. Yeah, that is so cool. I love it. <laughs> um, and then Tigers as well, right? Tigers. Great yeah. story. Great. Um, once again, another opportunity to teach people about tigers in the wild, tigers as ambassadors in zoos. It's very important to make sure that we're educating people about why we have our animals here. Our male tiger was actually a confiscation from a home. He was part of the illegal pet trade, and he has been with us since he's been about four months old. Um, So once again, another opportunity for our guests to watch a cub grow into a big, magnificent 400-pound tiger. Uh, The female, Karma, she was a donation from an animal park back east, and um, her sole purpose was just to give Neil a companion when they're young and you're raising them and um, keeping them as well-adjusted as possible coming from the pet trade. It's really important that they have human care, but also companionship, and the best companion you can give an animal is another one of its kind. So we were incredibly grateful for this um, donation of the female tiger. They um, Introducing them was a scary day. Yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> they were only, they were only, they were five months at that time, um, still very small, manageable. But, you know, this, this tiger from back east made the trip in a van across the country, and it was like they had to get along. We couldn't be like, oh, sorry, Karma, get back in the van and we'll drive <laughs> you home. It wasn't like a play date. This was like, this is your companion for life. So we introduced them, Neil the male, never seen, you know, another tiger like this before, didn't know naturally um, how to respond. And I thought, oh my gosh, what have we done? Um, For about two hours, he wanted nothing to do with her. But then I got down on the ground and I started playing with her and I started playing with a ball and then we all started playing together. And by six o'clock that night, they were best friends and have been ever since. And now they're four. That's amazing. Got down on the ground. She That's says right. all casually, the ball started playing with the one tiger, well, then both know. the tigers. Yeah. Just the super casual, just, you know, <laughs> dropping that out, sprinkling it in. Yeah. All right. I think you might have buried the lead on this interview. <laughs> that's amazing. That's so cool. No, that's really, that's, that's such a beautiful story. I love that. Um, do y'all get a lot of um, animal donations like that? I mean, again, coming from good places, I know yeah. that, but I just, I never thought of the phrase donated a tiger right (laughs) (laughs) yes not very common so our animals actually all have individual stories i mean absolutely as much as our students come from different places and have individual personalities our animals have individual stories um we do have some that are confiscations in california the the rules and laws are very strict protecting animals against private ownership and crossing borders etc so it is common to get that call from Fish and Wildlife asking if we can, you know, house a young primate or a young cat who's just been confiscated. We do get animals that come from other zoos uh, because they maybe aren't adapting well in the exhibit with others of its kind and um, need more human attention, which that's actually a thing. You know, mm-hmm. there are some animals that just... They thrive more when they have that that um, devoted care of a human, and that makes them, you know, individual. And so we take those on. We have people call us. They have a parrot. They have a snake. They have a tortoise. They have a pig that they thought would be a great pet and they can no longer take care of. We get that call probably at least once a week. Oh, wow. So we're open to um, being able to provide a forever home to an animal who we have room for and we think our students can benefit from, meaning that experience with the animal. Yeah, that's that's absolutely awesome. That's very cool. Um, are there any conservation organizations that you wanted to give a shout out to? Of course I do. All right. And um, the one I would like to give a shout out to is actually um, right here at our zoo. And I... I love to be able to promote this um, organization. It's called the Butterfly Conservation Project because we have hundreds and hundreds of visitors come to our zoo and they ooh and awe over Neil and Karma and Ira, 
but they have no idea that right in the center of our zoo is a project that's been going on for almost 20 years uh, that is um, bringing back species of butterfly that were once thought to have been extinct. And an example of that is the Palos Verde blue butterfly, which is a local species that comes from right here in the Palos Verdes Peninsula, which is about 40 miles from here. And um, this particular biologist, who's an instructor here at Moore Park College, Dr. Jana Johnson, um, collected the specimen with the permission, obviously, of Homeland Security and Fish and Wildlife, and brought this species of butterfly uh, back to populations that are um, now acceptable and at acceptable levels in the wild. Um, it's a great uh, project here for our students to participate in, for biology students uh, at Moore Park College to participate in. And now they've moved on. Uh, the Lang's Metal Mark was the next butterfly that they brought in as part of that project. Um, but it's um, it's just like the little engine that could. That's so cool. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I feel it's important. I, I mean, if I may, I feel it's important to really um, have people understand that there are animals out there that we don't see every day. People tend to latch on with, with all due admiration and respect to animals like elephants and polar bears and killer whales and all this huge megafauna. But there are animals like butterflies that sometimes we forget about. And they help our planet thrive. And I think that um, that's why this project is so special to me and important to get out the word out about. Absolutely. That's that's really cool. I love that. Thanks. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. Got it. Where shall I begin? The one that sticks out in my head, um, once again, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know throw out any, oh, when I was down on the ground with a tiger. <laughs> but I was, this was a long time ago when this thing was a little bit more, when this type of activity was a little bit more common. I was driving a um, young tiger named Taj. She was about six months old at the time. I was driving her from Discovery Kingdom Animal Park up in Northern California back here to Moore Park. It's about a six-hour drive. And she was in a crate where she traveled safely, but when baby tigers are young and they're still drinking some formula and they're already eating meat, that combination in their tummies makes for the stinkiest poop you will ever smell. <laughs> almost, well, almost as bad as a penguin. So... I was driving in the van. It was about 110 out. We were driving through the central California area where there are not many gas stations and restrooms. And this tiger took the biggest poop you could ever imagine. And the air conditioner went out. <laughs> so I knew that I was up in this area of like Colinga, California. It's about three and a half, four hours north of here. And just okay, so Colinga is known for a place called Harris Ranch where there are thousands and thousands of uh, cattle. Okay. So it's it's a known thing in California when you drive by Harris Ranch, you roll up your windows because it smells like <laughs> cow crap. So I'm driving in a van with now the windows rolled down because the air conditioner broke. There's nasty tiger poo in the back. This tiger is and I had to try to get off the freeway to clean the crate because the tiger didn't even like the smell of her own poo. <laughs> and she was walking through it and making it worse. Oh. So I have that smell paired with the let me, let me freshen up this van, open the windows, and the smell of 5,000 cattle poop. And I, 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 this is like the closest I ever came to wanting to barf um, <laughs> while I'm driving from the smell of poo. It was disgusting absolutely disgusting. I finally got to an almost as disgusting gas station. <laughs> and I didn't know what I, I, I literally didn't know what to do how to clean a crate how to take a tiger out of a crate at a gas station which was right next to a motel six and I had a lot of people watching me and how to clean this tiger covered in poop 
the van smells, the crates poop, and, you know, just I'm there at a Chevron and, like, trying to figure out how to get through the next hour covered in poop with the smell of poop outside. So that's one of my worst experiences, and I remember it like it was yesterday. And at that time, I was only, like, 22 years old. <laughs> so that was, like, throwing me into in with the wolves. Yeah, that's a, that's a good story. Yeah, that worked. That worked. Awesome. Can we talk about <laughs> butterflies more, please? Well, no. Um, no, but seriously, thank you so much for doing this. I do really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Love talking to you. <laughs> All right. So there we have it. Uh, Make sure that you're following America's Teaching Zoo on Instagram and Facebook at America's Teaching Zoo. And if you'd like to learn more about the program, make sure you hit up zoo.moorparkcollege.edu. Go out and uh, spend some time in California and learn how to do the thing that all my cool guests do. And then maybe someday I'll interview you. Yay. I'd like to say thanks to Laura Shank, my Red Panda-level patron. And uh, hey, everybody, here's a quick reminder. The word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.